This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Revelation 11 has been called the most difficult chapter in the book to interpret. The nature of it forces us to make some decisions about how we're going to interpret the entire book. And so to begin, I want to give you just kind of a cursory understanding of approaches that Christians have taken uh, in interpreting this, this book. Because you've got to remember, we live in the 21st century. There have been many, 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 many Christians before us who have had the same Bible and the same spirit. And they have approached this in various ways. I'm going to give you four lenses through which the book of Revelation has been understood historically. It might help you understand, if you've been confused at all about how I've been preaching through this, it might help you understand a little bit more about how I'm approaching it. The first lens is called preterism. When you hear the word preterism, you just think it's all in the past, baby. It's all in the past. Preterism, past. Revelation has already been fulfilled. Some of it at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Some of it when the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century AD. Now, the strength of this interpretation is that it places Revelation in its 1st century context. It is a letter written to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, but it is hard to imagine the new heavens and the new earth were fulfilled in the fall of the Roman Empire. It's hard to imagine that. But listen, uh, that interpretation is interesting in, in that it gives us a window into how bad it must have been for Christians under Roman rule. Think about it. If, if Revelation 21 and 22 is fulfilled in the fall of the Roman Empire, when it fell, it felt like heaven. So it does give us a window into how bad things must have been for Christians during that time. That's the first lens. Preterism, it's all in the past. Second lens is historicism. Uh, historicism reads Revelation as a straightforward sequential roadmap of history from the first century to the end. Everything is sequential all the way through. So it starts shortly after the first century, and then it works its way all the way to the end of history. Now, you can imagine the challenge with that. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> Nobody knows. This is the problem with it. This is the problem with it. It tries to sequentially map this. So you're looking for Napoleon in Revelation. Then you're looking for Hitler in Revelation. If you get too far ahead of the game... And you're suddenly, well, we, we determined that Revelation 19 happened last decade. Okay, next is Revelation 2021. 20, okay, maybe we were wrong. So we got to go back from the start and start all over again. Got significant weaknesses now, right? Significant weaknesses. During the Cold War, for example, people saw Russia in Revelation. A decade ago, they saw Iraq. Now they see COVID. In a few years, we'll be on to something else. So historicists tend to see Revelation being fulfilled in whatever crisis is pertinent to the day. Then on another day, another group of historicists see that that view was wrong and find something completely different. So historicism is irreducibly subjective. It's, it's by far the, the worst way to read uh, the book of Revelation. I mean, who's to say that Hitler was more the beast than Stalin? 
or that 666 is a reference to Bill Clinton, as one website I found argues, or uh, another article maintains it's actually Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters in each of his names. He's the beast. It's all hopelessly subjective. It's all hopelessly subjective. The text ends up saying anything we want it to say. The third lens is futurism. Futurism. Futurist reads Revelation 4, chapter 4, verses, uh, chapter 4 through, through 22 as a prophecy solely concerned with the events that will unfold in the future immediately before the end of human history. Okay? In the future, immediately before the end of human history. The ever popular Left Behind series uses this lens. Okay? This is the, the, the futurist, literalist, Jewish flavor way of interpreting Revelation is also the newest way on the scene didn't arrive in church history until about the 1800s. So for a lot of years, it was not read this way. A lot of years. Now, the strength of this is that it does emphasize rightly how Revelation speaks to the future. It's not just about the past. Futurism is right to see that some things in Revelation deal with the final consummation of human history. But it also has some weaknesses. The first is, if, if Revelation 4 to 22 is entirely only about events that will occur right before the end of human history, then most of Revelation was barely relevant to its original readers. Yeah, sure, it would have helped them understand the end of the world, but it, but it doesn't do much in speaking to their immediate context. So I do wonder, when they hear John say, I'm about to tell you what must soon take place in chapter 1, how they would have understood that. Often futurism uh, assumes a strict sequential chronology, as well. But we can't assume that what's shown to us in chapter 12 comes in time after what we see in chapter 6. I've pointed that out a number of times. The fourth lens is idealism. The idealist reads Revelation as a symbolic conflict between the forces of good and evil. Revelation, idealists argue, does not point to particular historical figures, but depicts the timeless struggle between God and Satan. It interprets Revelation as a series of repeated symbolic pictures focusing on the church's triumphant struggle from the first century to the last judgment in the eternal state. Now, the strength of idealism is that it understands the symbolic nature of Revelation. It realizes that Revelation's imagery is rooted first in Old Testament language and second in the known world of the first century. The other strength is that it sees behind the first century context deeper spiritual realities that would outlive and transcend ancient Rome and remain relevant for believers throughout the ages, every century, every generation. The weakness is that it can at times underemphasize the fact that all of history is moving somewhere. That is, idealism sometimes sounds vague, as if there's no point or there's no end point in, in history as we know it. As if Revelation is just about this, this struggle between good and evil and, and, and not also about the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. So what approach do I think uh, best helps us understand Revelation? Well, I think there, there is a strength in each approach that we need to pull out. With the preterist, we need to read Revelation in its immediate context. It is a letter written to first century Christians in those seven churches, and it would have been intelligible and applicable to them. First, with the idealist, we must look at Revelation as a symbolic portrayal of God's work, most of which can be applied to any historical time. To to read Revelation symbolically and metaphorically is to read it with its genre in mind, apocalyptic genre. With the futurist, we must read Revelation with the end of history in mind. 
recognizing that the book in parts, in parts, depicts the second coming, the final judgment, the eternal state. And with the historicists, we must understand that the prophecies of Revelation, though they're not limited to one particular occurrence, are fulfilled in space and time. So each one has a strength that I think helps us understand this book. Now, as I mentioned, chapter 11 forces the reader to make some interpretive decisions. So let's read it, and then we'll work our way through it. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of this Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So there's two ideas we have to get right in this chapter. We've got to understand measuring the temple and what that's about, and the two witnesses. So this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at measuring the temple, what does it mean, the two witnesses, and then applications from that. Okay. First, measuring the temple. Verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. Now notice that John is instructed not just to measure the structures, but also the people who worship in it. As I've mentioned in, in previous messages, the New Testament redefines the sanctuary of God or the temple of God as the people of God. First Corinthians 
Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Believers are the temple. In the new heavens and the new earth, John doesn't see a temple because God is the temple. So the the image of, of the temple has never been primarily about architecture or a building, but people. More specifically, God meeting with and being with his people. Now, to say that the temple, the altar, and the worshipers are measured is to say that God protects and watches over his people. They are under his care. They're under his lordship and his sovereign oversight. Now, look at verse 2. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they'll trample on the holy city for 42 months. So this, this prohibition shows that what is measured is placed under divine protection and what is not measured is exposed to assault by the nations. It also implies that the court outside the sanctuary symbolizes the holy city. The court symbolizes a city. And in Revelation, cities symbolize communities of people, not merely collections of buildings and streets. So this is in a paradoxical way in which Revelation, uh, Revelation's visions work and describe the church. Christ's holy temple city is secure and vulnerable. It's secure and vulnerable. Secured from from spiritual destruction and divine wrath, but vulnerable to attack through persecution by the world's unbelieving peoples. The church is both invincible and vulnerable. Now, we're told the unbelieving peoples of the world will trample on God's people for 42 months. Now, what is the deal with the 42 months? Now, there are actually a number of ways Revelation and other parts of Scripture depict this period of time. Here, it's 42 months. In verse 3, it's 1,260 days. In chapter 12, verse 6, it's the same, 1,260 days. Chapter 13, verse 5, it's 42 months. In chapter 12, verse 14, it's time, times, and half a time. A year, two years, and half a year. This also occurs twice in Daniel. So it's all the same unit of measure. 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time. It's all the same length of time. It's three and a half years. Now, as we've already seen, numbers have a qualitative meaning to them. They're not just indicators of quantitative measurement. They qualitatively mean something. They point to something qualitatively. So besides length of time, what would this represent? Well, how would we find out? Class, how would we find out? The Old Testament. Yes? The Old Testament. Now, here's some things to consider. The number 42 first arises during Israel's journey through the wilderness in the Exodus. Now, counting the two years before Israel's judgment for disobedience, God's people spent 42 years journeying from Egypt to the Promised Land. Additionally, the Bible lists 42 encampments during the wilderness journey. Or Elijah prayed the heavens would be shut over Israel's idolatry. There was no rain for three and a half years. And so this period of time seems to be associated with the time of of rebellion during which God's faithful people are protected in the midst of trials. Time of three and a half years plays a particularly important role in the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 foretells the tribulation of the Jews under Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the Greek ruler who desecrated the temple and was defeated by the Maccabean revolt in the mid-2nd century BC. We're told in that prophecy that that period of time under Antiochus IV, that time of tribulation and hardship would last for time, times, and half a time. So here again, this period symbolized an intense period of suffering through which God's true people emerge victorious. 
So this number took on a meaning of tribulation and trial. It's not a literal three and a half years, but refers to the church age in which we live. It's a time when God's people are kept spiritually safe, even while they are physically opposed. God's people are both in the temple, safe and secure, and they're in the outer courts, trampled, beaten, and abused. It's both. Now, maybe we don't think of um, spiritual protection being worth much. I don't know how that lands on your ears. Most of us would probably prefer physical protection or economic protection. But think about it. It is no small thing that you have not committed apostasy yet. That is not a small thing. It is no small thing that I'm still a Christian. Is it because I'm real smart? Or is it because God has measured and sealed me in the temple? It's amazing to me the church has not gone under for over 2,000 years. Think about that. Think about that. Think about how many nations have come and gone in that period of time. The church has not. It's amazing to me. It has not gone under in 2,000 years. We're not the first Christians to walk the planet. Millions have trod this soil we walk on before any of us were a twinkle in daddy's eye. Why? Because God has kept the church safe. And you know what? It doesn't matter how bad it gets out there. God will continue to preserve the gospel and protect the church and keep it moving forward. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It is an unstoppable entity because God has made it to be that way. Second, two witnesses. Now, these, don't, these two witnesses don't introduce something new into the story. Like we've seen in the past, it's the same thing using different imagery, a different metaphor. Verse 3, I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, the identity of these two witnesses has been the subject of a lot of controversy. The activities described in the subsequent verses make us think of people like Moses, Elijah, others think Enoch is one of the two in mind, many other suggestions as well. My belief is that these two witnesses are metaphorical for the church as a whole, with the number two echoing the Old Testament requirement for two witnesses to validate a claim. Now, several pieces of evidence to support this. The first, the witnesses are persecuted by the beast in chapter 11, verse 7, as is the church as a whole in chapter 13, verse 7. Now, Daniel predicted that the people of God would be attacked by the fourth beast and its horn. We're going to be looking at that in, uh, in chapter 13. But Daniel predicted this in Daniel 7, 21. The horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Second, the entire world sees their suffering and triumph. The entire world sees their suffering and triumph, which fits most naturally with a reference to the entire church, a worldwide entity. Third, the 1,260 days refers to the entire period between Christ's resurrection and second coming. The church witnesses to the world what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
declaring salvation to all who put their trust in him and judgment to those who refuse to repent and believe. So the church's task as it waits for the return of the Lord is to proclaim the gospel. Yet it is clothed in sackcloth. Why are we clothed in sackcloth? Sackcloth was worn for one of two reasons. In a state of repentance or at the dawn of judgment. The church is clothed in sackcloth. When we speak of judgment, there's a sense in which we should do so with tears. Part of the church's mission is to proclaim the judgment of God to come. Verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So verse 5 tells us that those who desire to harm the two witnesses will themselves suffer harm. As explained previously, the two witnesses symbolize believers who witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If people wish to injure them, fire comes from the mouth of the witnesses who consume their enemies. Some days I wish I had that superpower. As cool as it would be to be literal, it is certainly symbolic and apocalyptic. Time and again, apocalyptic literature, fire symbolizes judgment pronounced on those who refuse to heed the message. Examples of this are found in 2 Kings and Jeremiah, Jeremiah especially. Jeremiah is sometimes called the prophet whose mouth is full of fire. Verse 6 is again symbolic. These plagues and judgment anticipate the judgment to come, a judgment pronounced by the church of Jesus Christ against those who refuse to listen to its message. Verse 7, now when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them. And kill them. Now, some interpreters see here a literal martyrdom of two witnesses. Uh, maybe it's Enoch and Elijah. You know, they didn't die, so they come back to live again, and then they die in this persecution. I don't, I don't think they're going to return again. Apocalyptic, again, tilts us towards a symbolic reading. John is teaching us that the church will give testimony to Jesus, but this testimony will be contested and opposed. This image of the beast connects with the prophecy of Daniel 7 again. In Daniel 7, we read about four great empires that would arise in history, and each of them would be represented by a deadly beast. And against that backdrop, it makes sense that the beast of Revelation is a persecuting imperial ruler and government, corresponding in John's time to the threat posed by Rome and Domitian. The fact the beast rises from the bottomless abyss, uh, bottomless pit, indicates that it exerts a demonic power in service of the devil. John uses the present tense here to speak of the beast's current menacing reality to John's readers. But because Revelation is also symbolic and prophetic, this beast will take different forms throughout church history. There's something important to note here. Every nation and national leader that has opposed the gospel and the work of the church is in some way, shape, or form an agent of the devil. The Bible simply will not allow us to ascribe natural causes to spiritual darkness. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 8, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Now, the point here is two corpses uh, literally die in the streets of Jerusalem. The point is that the church is scorned, maligned, dishonored by the world. Not to bury a corpse in the ancient world was a great indignity and shame. The great worldly city mistreats believers, mistreats the church, slays believers. And John says the city is, that is treating believers in this way is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt. Verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. And we'll celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Tom Schreiner sums it up well. He says, the church in its prophetic and witness-bearing role condemned the evil engaged in by the world and the world cannot bear to be criticized in this way. Not all lost people who listen to the gospel are receptive to it and warmed by it. For some, they're infuriated by it. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So John's vision together, even with church history, shows that the world's victories over the church are temporary and empty because of God's resurrection power. Paul Gardner said this, he said, however many times churches are destroyed and God's people martyred or exiled or persecuted, and however many celebrations there are of those events among the unbelievers across the world, God will continue always to raise it for himself, his church. The image that John sees probably portrays the gathering of the church at the end of time. And it's far from secret since their enemies watched them. Accompanying the resurrection of Christ's witnesses is a corresponding judgment on the wicked. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. There's quite a bit of debate over who the survivors who give glory to God are and what means that they give glory to God. Is it genuine repentance that occurs in a few people right as the end is dawning? It's possible. That's what we should pray for. Others point out Nebuchadnezzar who gave glory to God in Daniel 4 but was never considered a true believer. So this giving glory to God may be more of an unbelieving terror as they realize God is truly God. I'm going to skip the seventh trumpet for now. I'll circle back to that later. And I just want to finish our time by looking at two points of application from this. Two points of application 
first is accept the church's vulnerability. Accept the church's vulnerability. If the church is really being the church, there will always be some people who hate the church. Okay? If the church is really being the church, there are always going to be some people who hate the church. You have to accept that. And you got to get over it. If we're thinking, well, this group of people over there or this organization, you know, everybody's going to think well of us and they're going to embrace us, pick a different party because it's just not going to happen. Jesus said there will be days like this. So you need to remember this. There will be opposition to the church and there will be opposition to Alliance Bible Church. Not everyone is going to think or speak well of us. Jesus' death is wonderfully clarifying on that point. From a purely humanistic, worldly perspective, what got Jesus killed? From a purely worldly, humanistic perspective, what got Jesus killed? Here's the answer. His mouth. His mouth got him killed. From the perspective of those who wanted him executed, what got Jesus in hot water was that he ran off at the mouth. What Jesus said, the positions he took, the things he stood for and against, aroused the opposition to mobilize themselves in order to take him out. Jesus knows more about cancel culture than we ever will. And he shows us that just because you're doing everything perfectly doesn't mean there won't be opposition. In those moments, we need to resist the temptation to think, God must not be in charge anymore. He must have left us. Instead, remind yourself, oh yeah, Revelation 11. The two witnesses die. The holy city is trampled. That's right. Jesus said there would be days like this. We can look around the world and it's not hard to find examples of Christians being marginalized. You may have seen it this past week. You may have experienced it this past week. The days ahead may in fact be difficult for the church. There's already a rich history of churches being canceled. And there's no reason to believe that's going to stop. Her hardest days, I believe, are still ahead. But so are her best days. Second, believe in the church's invincibility. Expect the church's best and worst days are still ahead. The church's best and worst days are still ahead. Remember Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds. What did he say? Let them both grow until the end. Let them both grow until the end. There will be more martyrs and more revivals. You want to know how the rest of this unfolds? That's how it's going to unfold. There are going to be more martyrs 
and more revivals. Let them both grow until the end. In 1685, the French King Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, which had guaranteed religious freedom to the French Protestants known as the Huguenots. Thousands of Christians were slaughtered, and they were slaughtered in barbaric ways. And in parts of France, the persecution was so intense, the church was eradicated. Sometimes we forget that. We, we have this old phrase, this old saying from church history. The blood of the Mars is the seed of the church. And we think wherever there's persecution, the church is going to grow. Yeah. But it might grow in a different way than we think. Just because it's persecuted in this place doesn't mean it's going to grow in this place. Church history is replete with stories of persecution so intense the church has been eradicated from that area. Iraq was most recent when ISIS was at its height. In 1685, the church was eradicated from France. Louis had ordered his persecution to force the Protestants into returning their allegiance to Roman Catholicism. His objective was to bring peace to the kingdom. The ruthless persecution, however, embittered the Protestant nations around him into which thousands of Huguenots fled. What happened? Louis spent the rest of his life mired in warfare and died bitter and alone. Before that century was over, Louis' kingdom would be savaged by the French Revolution. But during that same century, the nation of England, which had harbored so many Huguenots, experienced the flowering of the gospel in the ministries of two very famous Christians, John Wesley and George Whitfield. The monarchies of those nations that rejected the gospel have disappeared. Meanwhile, blessed by the gospel they cherished and the persecuted church they took care of, the royal houses of Britain and Holland remain to this day. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God has seen to her invincibility. InterServe is a missions organization. They detail the story of Christianity in the country of Nepal. The first church was opened in Nepal in 1959 with 29 Christians. 29 Christians in the entire country of Nepal. 29 Christians, 29. That's it. 1959. By 1985, there were 50,000 Christians. At the climax of persecution in 1990, there were 200,000 Christians. And by the year 2000, there were 400,000, some estimates as high as half a million Christians in 3,000 churches, a church in every one of the 75 districts in Nepal, and believers in most of the people groups and caste groups. That's the story of the church. 
Listen, folks, the church is not losing this spiritual battle. It's not losing the spiritual battle. And God has promised that she will not. Now, you may lose your life. You will almost certainly lose something of your prestige and your money, your reputation, if you're following Christ. But you will not lose in the only struggle that really matters. Yes, God has made the church vulnerable, but he has also made it invincible. It does not matter what's going on out there. The gospel is going to press on. The church is invincible. Amen? Let's pray. And Lord, we need this recalibration. We need to be reminded that nobody gets to heaven on flowery beds of ease. You have promised hardship. You have promised tribulation. You have promised opposition. And we need to remember that so we're not caught off guard by it. We ought never be surprised by it. But Lord, in the midst of this, you have also given us this wonderful promise that even in the face of the harshest opposition, the gospel will not be lost and the church will press on. Lord, I pray that we would hold loosely to the life that you give us. We recognize that in our faithfulness to Christ, we may lose our lives, but that you would give us a grander picture than, than the small Christianity that's bound up with individualism. Give us a grander picture of the worldwide movement of the gospel, and we're part of it. We contribute to it in life and death. And as we press on, Lord, I pray that you would remind us the beautiful truth that you gave us in Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Nations rise, nations fall. The church only rises. We worship you for that now. In Christ's name, amen.